I never thought about how until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see Hull where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull. Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of Hull, what we do and who we are. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying the beats. Um, this is my little tribute to Wham! Exclamation mark, who I used to absolutely adore. And I still do, really. And I, I don't care who knows it. Their album Make It Big that uh, Careless Whisper was on. Um, that album was the first album that I ever bought. And I used to play it all the time because it was the only album I had. But I loved it. And I played it until the tape got taffled up in my Seychelles Walkman and I had to throw it away. And the Walkman as well, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty devastating um, to lose the, the album and the means of playing it all in one go. But that's, that's how it was back in the 80s. So yeah, thanks for coming back to listen to another chat with a writer, somebody who writes Hull. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we're doing a series talking to people who have put the city and its stories before stage, screen and radio audiences. And we're discovering how they make their work and why they do it and what inspired them. And we're trying to get a sense of what is the essence of writing Hull. Lydia Marchant wrote her first play for Hull Trucks Young Writers Festival almost a decade ago, aged just 13. Since then, she's been refining her talent at places like the Sheffield Crucible, the Leeds Playhouse, the National Theatre, Soho Theatre and Payne's Plough, as well as with the Hull companies. Early recognition has come her way in the form of awards and nominations, and she's just finished an MA in writing for stage and broadcast media at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London. Her stated mission is to make work that explores the country's shifting political landscape but from a human and often comic perspective. But most importantly, she's from Hessel and she's a whole city fan. Ladies and gentlemen, Lydia Marchant. Well, first of all, right, congratulations on the Nick Dark Award nomination. Yes. What's, that, what's all that about? Um, so basically, I a few months ago, I kind of sent off a play 
to this competition. Um, and it was like the very, very early draft of the play. Okay. And, um, and then kind of just sort of forgot about it and then got an email um, this month, which is the month that I graduate, so it was quite nice to have a little boost, mm. saying that um, I was on the shortlist, which is really cool. Yeah. I get to go to a like posh award ceremony at the Royal Court oh, wow. next month, which is, which is really cool. But uh, it's kind of the first draft of the play was all about like NHS privatisation and like set in the future. Uh-huh. And then I've completely taken all of that out. And then when I got, when I got the email, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done um, how do you qualify for that? Who's the award for and what are the kind of stipulations? I think it's quite a easy one. Like I was kind of looking at the other writers on the, the short lesson as a real like mix of experience. I think you kind of just submit a full length play essentially. Mm-hmm. So anyone can kind of do it and then they've got some really cool judges. So I think um, the commissioning editor for Radio 4 is one of the judges cool. and things like that. So it's quite a nice way of getting seen without having to have an agent mm. or like get nominated or anything like that. And also, yeah, you, you just said that you just graduated. Tell me about, you did an MA, right? Uh, yes. And you've literally just handed in your dissertation. Yeah, last Friday. <laughs> so I might not have a master's degree yet, we're waiting to see. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so I did a year at um, Central School of Speech and Drama, yeah. which was, because I've kind of been in Hull literally all of my life. So I was like, it'd be nice to spend a year in London with a loan so that I can kind of not just work full time. And it's been really cool because it's, um, it was kind of theatre, but also radio, film and t- TV. Um, so I've kind of learnt about that and the differences between all the mediums and learnt that I never want to do film <laughs> unless someone offers me like 100k, in which case I, I will do film. What was it about that? Is it just the environment, the world of, of film writing? Because the way that writers are trapped in TV, film and, and sort of theatre is quite different. Your stature as, a, as yeah. a writer is different. Was that the sort of feeling that you got? I think so, yeah. So I kind of got told that normally on a film you'll have like one writer that will write the first draft and then they'll kind of be fired and then a second writer will come in and like you could end up with like 10 writers on a play, on a film, sorry. And um, the first writer might not even get credited. Whereas having started out in theatre, Kind of where I'm used to being like revered. Mm. <laughs> I didn't want to go to that. With kind of modern TV and Netflix series and box sets, there are teams of writers now. I think that the kind of model has changed. Would you ever fancy been in a team, or would that just be? I think I'd love to. Um, it'd be it'd be really interesting. I think often you get the kind of overarching writer like Mike Bartlett, who's yeah. the one that's really credited, and then individual writers get individual episodes, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. So I think that'd be quite interesting. I tend to think that my strength as a writer is probably dialogue. Mm-hmm. And then the thing I find harder is like making stuff happen. Yeah. So I actually think it'd be quite cool to kind of have an overarching plot and then just be able to kind of fill in those characters. Mm-hmm. I think I'd quite enjoy that. If you wrote in like a team, just staying with TV writing, um, like Paul Abbott does a similar thing. So he's the kind of the guy out front who's the writer and he storylines things. Would you have to kind of adapt your style for a Paul Abbott feel? Is that, is that how it would work? I guess you would, yeah. The characters have a way of speaking and then you kind of have to mimic that. I really like it as a kind of guilty pleasure thing, but I was watching Hinterland and I kind of feel with Hinterland, you can tell that different writers have written different episodes because one's trying to mimic like a Morse style crime drama and then one's trying to be like Scandi Noir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went to Central where you went, but that's the first time I'd not lived in in Hull. Was that the first time you'd spent a lot of time living away? Um, yeah, pretty much 
I'd, I'd kind of maybe had like three or four week spells in other places. Yeah. But um, I think while I was away, I became like obsessed with Hull. So um, I went to a, a leaving party, like an end of term party at a mate's. And as I was heading off, one of my friends who's from um, Italy mm. turned to me and was like, oh, I need to come to Hull. I need to come to Sailmakers and meet Toby the dog. <laughs> and I realised that I'd just spent the whole of my course banging on about Hull being the best city in the world. Um, and then coming back, I'm now like moaning about it again. But definitely whenever I'm away from Hull and then I like come back on the train and see the Humber Bridge, I'm like, home. I, I think probably the youngest person of all the people I'm going to speak to, and yet you are by no means a new writer. When, when did you start? I know this because this week I accidentally came across a folder of like all my plays that my mum has made that I didn't know about. So I think I was 13 when I wrote my first play for the um, Young Writers Festival that they used to have a whole truck. Right. Um, and I kind of, I wasn't going to submit anything because I just couldn't really think of an idea. And then like two days before the deadline I heard um, Alan Bennett's Lady in the Van mm -hmm. on the radio and suddenly had this like inspiration and wrote a very kind of Alan Bennett, Godber-style, grumpy old man play called The Final Journey. And then kind of a whole truck got a writer's group the following year that I joined and then just kind of stayed here ever since. Had you kind of thoughts and designs on, on writing? Had you written sort of before that? So I think I always knew that I liked writing. Like English was definitely my best subject at school and mm. stuff. And um, I don't want to boast, but I did actually win the Beverly Poetry Competition Fantastic. two years in a row. <laughs> wow. And um, the second year, I also was the runner-up as well, which I think maybe suggests how many people were entering the Beverly <laughs> Poetry Competition. But I definitely hadn't really thought about theatre, because I don't think it's the kind of thing you can just do on your own. Um, so I'd done like poetry and written little books and stuff. So it was kind of quite a rare opportunity to hand something in and then get some actors and a director and put it together. And was that experience how you imagined it, or was it a bit of a you know a bit of a shock when actors and directors and other voices and thoughts sort of start to come in? Um, it was really scary. I, I still get really really scared. Like I go into like this weird hyperdrive before any show of mine's on so I, I was just really 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 nervous and also because I was very very shy when I was 13 so I was also really scared about the fact that at the end of the festival all the writers had to stand on the stage and shake Nick Lane's hand and get a certificate and I entered the competition like every year for like five years before I managed to successfully shake Nick Lane's hand. Like I'd either hand in the wrong hand or I'd forget to do it and I'd just blank him. And, and like my parents just used to love watching me attempt to shake his hand at him. Right, okay. That's a huge moment, you know, in a darkened auditorium, lights, actors, and it's your words, it's your story. Yeah. From that point onwards, did you think, right, this is absolutely for me, or were you like... I don't know, I, um, I always struggle to tell if a play's gone well mm. so I wasn't necessarily that sure that I was very good at it um, and then I think the moment that I decided I wanted to actually be a writer was when I was 16 I got um, made young writer in residence here while Tom Wells was writer in residence I was kind of his mentee mm -hmm. um, which was really cool and that was when I kind of thought oh like maybe this is something that I could take a bit further mm -hmm. I think. Um. First time you saw Hull on stage, or, or the radio, the first time you saw Hull in a story? I was thinking about this, and actually, so my first experiences of theatre were um, 
at Spring Street, the Christmas shows, because mm. my birthday's on the 23rd of December, so my birthday trip would always be me and my friends going to like the Christmas show. And I feel like because they were written by Nick Lane, who was working here at the time, and I think they ha always had a like whole bent. Mm. So to be fair, I was probably like 16 before I saw a play that didn't have anything to do with Hull. Yeah, and what was that, do you remember? Um, I went to the RSC and saw like a couple of, um, I saw a double bill of The Tempest and Twelfth Night, and, that, and then we went on a tour of the theatre as well. And to be fair, that was another moment for me where I was like, I don't know what it's going to be, but I definitely want to work in theatre. It was just really cool. I still yeah. get excited, like, going backstage. <laughs> uh, it is exciting, especially that theatre. These really famous places, you, you sort of see all the wigs and there's a smell, and you see kind of actors from one show in this costume and that. And all the um, pictures of, like, the actors that have gone before as well, yeah. and all the, like, really iconic productions from, like... Yeah, I guess that... You're either intimidated by that or, you, or you're inspired by it, and you think, I'm in this part of the sequence, and that's, that's really exciting. So what play set in hold was the first one where you thought this is the first time I've sort of seen my home kind of depicted oh um, I really loved um, Confessions of a City Supporter yeah I can't think who it was written by now that was um, Alan Plater oh was it yeah so I think they did that that was one of the last things at Spring Street the old whole truck building and, it, and then they revived it for the new building in 2009 um, it's just after the promotion, was it? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. That was the version I saw. Roy North was in it, and Martin Barras. I'm not sure the actress's name, but they multi-rolled. And it was kind of a, a sort of family-based potted history of, well, the history of Hull City seen through the eyes of different generations of a family. Yeah. Did you feel that you were watching Hull? Yeah, it was... I've always been kind of obsessed with Hull City, and it just kind of felt... Obviously, sometimes you go to the theatre and you kind of feel like I'm going to have to sort of intellectually engage and try really hard to enjoy it whereas this it felt like it really just captured the mood of being a Hull City fan and thrashing teams nil-nil yeah like that. for you what makes a whole play where it feels kind of quintessentially whole rather than just something that's set here I feel like there's a certain kind of character that you find in Hull that you don't necessarily find in the rest of the north mm. so sometimes you get writers coming in from like Leeds or like Manchester and sort of writing that kind of voice but with whole references and stuff whereas I feel like there's a certain attitude to the city um, a kind of very love-hate attitude to the city and a kind of feeling that um, like say so when I was 11 I, I was part of a book group because I was a massive geek and we got to go for tea at the um, Lord Mayor's and um, I just remember him saying to us, like, don't feel like just because you're from Hull, you're not as good as anyone else. And often when I'm writing characters from Hull, I kind of feel that that's quite a root of quite a lot of feeling towards ambition and aspiration and stuff. It's interesting what you were saying about when you go away. I, I do the same. I go away and I talk too much about Hull. <laughs> and I just bore the shit out of people. I just can't help myself. It's like sort of sticking up for it and like, flying the flag. Yeah, and I think you accept other people from Hull slagging off Hull, but the minute somebody not from Hull slags off Hull, it's like, no, let me tell you that we have the world's only submarium. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right, yeah. I was listening to the Royal Court Writers Podcast, which I think is really interesting. We were just chatting about this before, and it was the episode with Evie Crow, and she said something that I've started to hear quite a bit when I've listened to conversations between writers and with writers, is that it's about finding your people. Do you feel like you found your people? 
In the sense of characters or in the sense of... I think what she was possibly talking to is the people you kind of work with, like a director or a group of actors or a theatre company where you go, this this is who I want to write for. And it just, it kind of meshes really well with what they want to say as a, as a company or a group of people. Have you found yours yet? Definitely. And definitely with like individual creatives, I think you find, I, I, with feedback, I've got a particular way of how I quite like getting feedback which is in I feel like you can get the same piece of feedback two ways you can get it in a really sort of damning way where you spend two days going oh I'm a terrible writer and then you realize that they're right or you get the kind of feedback where um, it's direct but it also is really inspiring and you can't wait to like start on the redraft um, so I've definitely found people that give that kind of support um, and I think there's so many brilliant companies in Hull that have like rooted themselves in a hole and say middle child or silent uproar and roaring girls um that the stories that they tell feel really right for me and my experience and i i quite like i've found recently that i really like being in the sort of playwright in the room mm. so rather than necessarily um it being something that i come up with in my bedroom and then have to try and excite people about it's something that we all kind of share in so i um, recently worked on a play with Roaring Girls and um, Beachbody Ready. And it was just really nice to be in a room with people where we all had the same ambition for the show and we all shared the same kind of values and we kind of come up with fun stuff in the room and then I kind of go away and edit it into some sort of structure. Mm -hmm. That's it, so that is part of the team really? Yeah, um, definitely. But whereas you, you're more of an equal member rather than just a gun for hire, which often is the case. Hi Dan, how are you Hi. doing? All right, Hello. yeah. Oh, are you in the middle of That's all right. I'm terribly sorry. Um, right. I was just going to say that at about half past four, we're getting some headshots taken for some actors here. If you guys are around and need some new headshots, <laughs> you're, you're welcome, basically, to have some oh. for free if you want them. All right. I was looking. I was actually thinking about getting some new headshots. Who's yeah. taking them? Um, Trisha, she's from Facet Photography. So right. those headshots are not technically like her specialty, but she takes some really nice ones. Um, she's the one with the greyhound. I think I've got her so, as a friend on Facebook. Yeah, she's really cool. Um, I'm terribly sorry. No, no, honestly, it's fine. Um, come to the upper foyer and we can get you We all love okay. a freebie, don't we? Exactly. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks a lot. That might be an idea. When I did the the Payne's Plough thing, yeah. everyone else had like professional headshots and then I had a selfie that I'd taken for Facebook. Right. Looking at the camera or not looking at the camera, that's that's always a sign of classes. If, if somebody's, you know, rehearsal room shots that often directors get, but they're kind of really engaged in something. Mm. You think, I think I can always tell if they've posed for that yeah. <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, in terms of the whole stories that you've seen, because there's been a big upsurge in, in people writing about whole, especially the commissions in 2017, but even before that, are there sort of stories and areas of whole life that, we've, that have been neglected thus far? I'm always, I don't know if this is a personal thing, I'm always really just interested in stuff that's going on in the rest of the country but from a whole perspective because um, I do feel like there's often a, a disconnect between um, say like the experience of people in London and, and in Hull so for example the play I'm writing at the moment um, that I, I'm partly doing with a group at Leeds Playhouse but also partly did as part of my uni course um, has a sort of youngish mum in it so she's maybe like 22, 23 which kind of with the mates that I went to school with and stuff and with how cheap it is to like rent a house in in Hull is mm. fairly normal whereas in London everyone's living in a house share till they're kind of like 35 40 so they, they couldn't really get their head around that experience 
So I'm just kind of interested in, yeah, just authentically kind of representing the whole experience mm. for the wider country. Yeah. Um, I did a play set in Texas recently and it really resonated with me. It sounded more like Yorkshire. I thought, I wish people outside London could see this because this is just how it is for a lot of people. And I just thought Texas kind of feels a bit like the American North in a way. Totally, and I think often with writing, the more specific you are to a certain place, actually, the more um, resonance you can end up having like on a wider level. The thing that always inspired me to, to write things specific to place was um, the Kate Atkinson book, Behind the Scenes at the I Museum. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's definitely Behind the Scenes at the Museum because it's not Night at the Museum. And sometimes when people ask me my favourite book, I say Night at the Museum, which is a film with Ben Stiller. But it, it's set in York and it's just so specifically rooted in York and it just really excited me that I felt like I could really like, identify with that character's experience because I had such a strong sense of where she was growing up which has always meant that I've never like not set anything in a specific place. Although sometimes I go a bit overboard of the references is sometimes the feedback I get from directors. In terms of writers who you read and have seen, who've inspired you, who, who do you keep going back to? Or who are you excited about when they think they've got a new play coming out? Not quite a writer. As a company, I feel like Middle Child are definitely making work for a really interesting audience and I'm always really eager to like take my non-theatre mates to see their shows so whenever they release something um, I find that really exciting and also generally their shows are really tune into the kind of experience of being kind of around my age now which which, which I always find really cool um, writers um, I have thought of my writer. Yeah, go on. Um, it's James Graham, who is very, very different, obviously, to the sort of stuff that I write, because he's a hugely, hugely clever man. But um, I just love how, as I saw Labour of Love, which was one of my favourite plays from last year, and at one point they're basically just describing the like Labour voting demographic and like drawing it on a whiteboard. And I was like, this shouldn't be like traumatically interesting, but it really is because he just kind of nails like the conflict between the characters and his characters kind of represent something deeper, but also feel like real people. And I've just seen everything he does seems to be so different and he experiments with different forms. Obviously there was the culture truck, mm. which was a farce, um, or this was meant to be, I think it was like a rom-com, Labour of Love. Um, but every single time he just kind of nails that. I do love his writing. But yeah, he seems to translate the political class and make it sort of human and accessible. Because, mm. well, one of the problems we've, we face nowadays is the fact that they just do seem so remote and sort of out of touch with their voters. Um, is there a story that you want to write that you think, in my career, I have to write this story? I'm, I think I've been beating around the bush for a while about something that really sums up kind of... This sound, this is a terrible way of putting it, but like youth aspiration in Hull. And I feel like I'm starting to develop an idea that that maybe sums that up. Um, and I'm quite interested at the moment in um, like Warren Records and the music scene in Hull, particularly with kind of on the back of City of Culture. Um, so I'm really interested in the kind of relationship between culture and young people in the city. And like Warren Records specifically, I think, 
are really interesting in terms of a lot of the young people signed there might have like dropped out of school or college or whatever and because of the support that they give them they kind of feel almost they're more likely to make it in the music industry than they are to go to university mm. and I just think that'd be really interesting but I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it yet. Do you want to wait to, to a stage in your career where you feel like you can do it justice? Is, is there a good time? Mm, yeah, it's difficult. I, I kind of... Um, so this play that I wrote that was um, uh, set kind of in an unspecified future where the NHS didn't exist, but it was more about relocating um, the health care system in America to the UK and just kind of setting it in the UK. And that was an idea that I was really excited about. And then I think I got a couple of drafts in and I maybe felt that at the moment I wasn't quite up to an idea of that scale. I think the research that it would take to do that properly and stuff was really hard. And it just kind of felt like my story was playing against this big political arc that I had. Um, so I kind of took it back a lot and simplified it. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that there's some ideas where you feel like one day I might be a writer that's at a stage to write that, but at the moment I don't quite feel up to it. Mm -hmm. You said about um, James Graham wrote a big article, actually it was a speech, and I read the transcript of it, about how arts courses have been sort of pushed off, you know, curricula, and they're becoming almost sort of like um, a, a bit of a luxury course, so drama and music. Um, as cuts have been made everywhere, they say we, we can do without these. And yet, he, he had some figures about how central the arts are and the entertainment industry is to our economy as a whole. And it's like, well, if you cut off the supply line, it's going to kill it. It's just if you stop feeding something, it's going to die. Where, where is the next generation going to come from? Well, I think this is the problem. And the other issue with that is so. Um a lot of young people from backgrounds where their parents can't necessarily afford to send them to youth theatre or um, or just don't really think of that as an option. Like school is the way that those young people access the arts mm. and it's, it feels like a level playing ground for everyone. So if you take that away, it will literally, the theatre industry and the kind of the entertainment industry on a wider sense will be made up of, yeah, people that could afford to go to classes from the age of five which I think would be really sad because I think the what the more experiences um, that like theatre and art represent, the more we kind of understand each other. And I'm a bit biased, but I think that's a really really important important thing. I completely agree. Um, another thing I, I was going to pick up on, I think I want to interrupt, is like you said that um, a middle child show is a, is a show that you feel that you could take your non theatre friends to. Yeah. Um, which means that. There are, a lot of shows where you think, oh, I don't know if I'd want to put them through this. Yeah. <laughs> which is absolute testament to Middle Child's mission statement, which is to create a great night out that feels like going to a football match or a gig. Do you think more theatre needs to be like that? Yeah, definitely. I do think you sometimes see plays where like, you could go away and write a really good essay on it, but actually as an audience member, you know, with a pint in your hand, it's not necessarily... Um, like hugely enjoyable and I think that's really sad because I think a lot of the plays that have stood the test of time say stuff like Shakespeare like were that for their audiences were a good night out um, it's not about not being too clever but it's kind of how you express the ideas that you're writing about and I think there are like theatre makers and companies that don't necessarily think of their audiences when they're making work what, what do you think they, their motivations are I, I think I know exactly what you mean what do you think they're aiming to achieve? 
Um, Go on, be controversial. <laughs> the, the, the Michael Billington review, that says how, how deep they are and kind of explains what they were trying to do to a muggle audience. Yeah. It's almost like they're trying to cement their place in, in the kind of, in theatre the history. Canon, yeah. In the canon, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Whereas I actually think the plays that will stand the test of time are the ones that like audiences love to come in to see, you know, stuff like Nine Night and Misty that transferred to the West End and audiences are still coming and audiences are still feeling like they're seeing themselves on that stage. So Nine Night, I saw that. I thought it was, for me, being in that audience, I'll never forget that just kind of looking around and listening to what pe different people were laughing at. It was one of the most fantastic atmospheres. The night I went, David Lammy, the MP, was there. And it just felt like a, just a really magical atmosphere. Um, there were jokes that I missed that I obviously knew that for the people from Jamaica and the West Indies or the Caribbean, meant a lot to them. And it was still thrilling to hear the reactions to that, even though it kind of went over my head. How did you feel watching that? Yeah, totally. It just kind of felt like... I think often when you go to the theatre you feel like you need to sit down, be quiet and there's so many rules whereas it felt like the audience were just properly engaging in what was being said and like there was a certain character um, who was a bit of a bad guy and every time he came on stage everyone would be like, oh, and like booing him and stuff. It's just so much more of a like active connection to what's going on which I think makes total sense like the special thing about seeing theatre surely is like seeing it with a room full of other people. You know you kind of pray for nights like that don't you where you just feel as one with the rest of the audience sharing this story and this experience and that absolutely felt like that um there's nobody shushing anybody can you imagine in a, no. you know i'm pretty i get kind of a bit irritated sometimes but that was one night where you just thought there's, there's noise from the audience it's noisy on stage and it felt possibly maybe like shakespeare might have been in the you know 1605 or whatever and a bit like truck at Spring Street, you know, that old truck audience, the fabled truck audience that <laughs> that maybe we haven't quite got back yet. You know, people would react verbally. They'd shout out or they'd, they'd talk. And as an actor on stage, you'd hear people react to something that you just said. And in some theatres, you know, they'd get ushers shushing them, shining mm. torches in their face. But that is it's a genuine reaction that shows that people are absolutely engaged in the thing that you're you're making. And I think if theatre's going to carry on, like, that's the route it has to go down and instead of the other route which was there was a thing about West End theatres recruiting like volunteer shushers that would wear a little badge oh God. and like tell people off if they were like rustling their sweets too loudly <sighs> I think if we do that That's then it horrible. just becomes a club that people don't want to join and they're not going to want to pay 25, 30 quid or up to 65, 70 quid oh God, yeah. just to be shushed by someone with a button badge They'll stay in and watch TV, you know, they'll save the money for the panto or they'll go to the West End and see a big musical. I've run out of questions, but one final one. I don't know if, um, is there anything that's occupying your thoughts, be it to do with the theatre or not at the moment? Is there any, anything that you find yourself thinking a lot about? Um, <laughs> I mean, there's definitely something I'm just <laughs> yeah. trying to. Um... I mean, I don't know if this, is a, this isn't a good answer. But um, I suppose at the moment, the big thing, because I've just graduated, the big thing that I'm thinking about is kind of how this works as an industry and how to kind of be an independent adult, not sort of living forever with my parents, but also doing the thing that I love, that I've kind of put quite a lot of years into 
developing and, and focusing on. So that's my big question at the moment, is how I put together what I love with surviving. Big thanks to Lydia for this, for her insight and honesty and eloquence. I admire these writers massively. Well, for a start, us actors are nothing without them. We are just bows without arrows. Writers are brave. It takes balls to invite an audience to spend an hour or two watching the manifestation of your imagination with the added pressure that you have to give them a worthwhile emotional experience or their money's worth or a good night out, whatever that might be for each of them. I'm going to leave you with this quote from the great Alan Plater from an interview he gave a few years before he died. And it's about accent, and specifically the role of the writer in echoing it whenever they write a play about a place. This is what he said. Joan Littlewood did a lot of work in Hull, I think just before the war and possibly just after as well, for BBC Radio. She did documentaries, early documentaries. She said you could walk the streets of Hull and hear the people speaking poetry. That's interesting. She didn't mean iambic pentameters, but that in all regional accents there is a kind of poetic element. Admittedly, you've got to dig around, you've got to distill it. You don't just walk down White Frigate and think, wow, listen to all that poetry. It's not that. It's much more complex than that. But I think there is a poetic streak in all Northern, Scottish, Welsh accents. I think it's one of the jobs of a writer with regional roots to sing that song for them. <laughs>